اینا So I'm aware that in the uh, weeks that I've been here, uh, in in the talks uh, weekly, there there have been a few threads that sort of run through uh, the talks, uh, and so I want to take one of those threads and uh, fill it out a bit, or quite quite a bit actually, explore it and expand on it quite a bit, and that is the. Nature of mind, <clears throat> or the nature of awareness. So, what does it mean to realize the true nature of mind? To realize uh, the true nature of awareness. I am also aware that uh, everyone here, obviously, is kind of has different. Uh, practice backgrounds. You've been doing different practices in the time that you've been here. You've had exposure to different teachings in your life, etc. So to some, uh, what we're talking about tonight will seem very, very relevant. It's very uh, apropos. Uh, To others, it will seem less pertinent right now, less relevant. Um, If that's the case, if it doesn't seem like this is really relevant to my practice right now, um, I hope that you can just listen. I hope it's still interesting. And I hope uh, one can listen with a sense of possibility. So just listening to something, okay, not right now, but there's a sense of the possibility of practice, possibility of an avenue to explore in practice. And one can just listen and file it for later. Just stick it somewhere and I'll come back to this later. And that's a totally valid and wonderful way to listen to a Dharma talk. Now, actually, I should really, and in in another situation, I would have uh, devoted three or four or five Dharma talks just to this subject. It's it's much more to this than meets the eye. There's much more to this than meets the eye in in terms of depth and and richness. Um, Yet I'm steaming ahead and doing what's foolish and trying to put it all in one. I hope it's not too full. And um, again, I hope it's full enough for the people that have been here and followed those threads um, that it, it again raises some questions. But more I'm interested in offering something, a possibility. How might one practice to discover the nature of mind? How, one might, how might one navigate uh, through practice as it deepens, as it evolves, to actually uh, come to that realization and then consolidate that realization, strengthen it. So, some words. Mind, awareness, that which knows, and consciousness. Mind, awareness, that which knows, consciousness. In this talk tonight, I'm using them all as synonyms. So I'll use them interchangeably, and meaning the same thing by all of them. Sometimes when we talk about mind, and my mind is t- 
you know, making such a fuss in my mind so difficult. We actually mean all the realm of thoughts. But you also get in the Dharma talking about mind, meaning just awareness or consciousness. Sometimes people leave out the word consciousness. People in Buddhist circles leave out the word consciousness from that group. And there's a reason that they do that, um, partly because the Buddha was a little bit dismissive of consciousness in the sense it's just something impermanent, not self, etc. Um, but actually to leave it out obscures something. It obscures something, which I hope will come clear in the talk, and I hope, uh, hope it makes sense. So different streams of, the, of, of Dharma tradition kind of make a promise, and it's if we understand the nature of mind deeply, the nature of awareness, consciousness, etc., deeply, if we really understand that deeply, there is freedom. That's the promise. And that runs through a lot of different uh, Dharma traditions, a lot of different Buddhist traditions. So what I want to explore and what, I, what I'm asking right at the beginning is, understand what about the nature of mind? What is it about the nature of awareness that I need to understand? And with that, how, as I said, how can I understand that? So I really am gearing this talk uh, not so much to questions of abstraction or philosophy. That, that can be very interesting, <coughs> I think, has its place in human sort of inquiry. But really talking on, on a very practice level, uh, we as meditation practitioners. So oftentimes we don't really think about the nature of mind. It's not something we give that much uh, reflection to, maybe until we start meditating, and then maybe we do, because meditation is a lot about awareness, a lot about consciousness. And at first, perhaps in the beginning years even of practice, the notion of the mind or awareness as the metaphor of a mirror uh, might feel very apt. Now, obviously, we don't think there's a mirror somewhere in us that if we cut open our brain, we get to this mirror. But that sense of awareness is somehow reflecting the world. We have that, even if it's not a conscious notion, that notion somehow embedded in us. Awareness is something that reflects the world. And in a way, we can see practice and the devotion to mindfulness and being present and bare attention as a kind of polishing of that mirror to see things as they really are, things as they truly are, to quote the Buddha. And so the, you know, the constant practice to let go of the entanglement in the story, the entanglement in papancha and complication, the opinions that we layer onto experience, the, uh, the preconceptions, the views, the images, the likes, the dislike, all that whole baggage of veil uh, of, that covers over the actuality of the experience. We have a sense of practice just patiently polishing that mirror so that we can, the awareness can reflect things as they really are. And so sometimes people use this uh, phrase or words, pure awareness. Now that actually means very different things in, uh, well, used in different contexts. But that might be a meaning. Awareness is pure in the sense it's free of all that papanchizing complication story, etc. Having that kind of model or metaphor, whether it's conscious or unconscious, 
uh, brings with it, can bring with it, a lot of clarity, a lot of vividness into the experience. And I'm sure many of you uh, have felt on retreat or as, as practice time goes by, the actual uh, imprint of perception becomes brighter, more vivid. The actual grass seems greener, the, the light seems more colorful. Col- everything stands out in a beautiful aliveness because we're metaphorically polishing that mirror. There's also something else that's very helpful about the metaphor of the mirror, and it's just a metaphor, in that if you think about a mirror, a mirror remains unaffected by what passes in front of it and is reflected by it. So I could be absolutely beautiful, I could be um, monstrously ugly, I could be scary, I could be this or that, or radiant, whatever, the mirror, just still and, and reflecting. And in a way, incorporating that kind of aspect of the metaphor into, into the practice lends itself towards equanimity. Can you see? Because there's, a, there's an aspect of the being that's unaffected. This aspect of mindfulness or awareness is unaffected by what passes in front. It's very, very useful. Now there are problems with this, and I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to lay out a few possible ways of conceiving of the nature of awareness, and then later come back to what, uh, what the potential problems there are, there are with each of them. So that one with the mirror might be uh, very understandable and useful, certainly in the beginning years, really years of practice, for most people years. But after much practice, or some degree of practice, a um, different sense of awareness can begin to kind of be discovered or open to. Now one comes about, one possibility is through developing the attentiveness, developing the mindfulness in a very sharp way, very focused awareness, very bright attentiveness, um, microscopic kind of fine awareness, and really refining the mindfulness like that. And what happens is that the reality that's revealed to us through that lens is of a very fastly, rapidly changing, impermanent reality. Everything, like uh, like um, pixels on a screen changing, like like uh, sand falling on, on the surface of, 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 a, of a lake or something. Just change, 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 arising, passing, arising, passing. Included in that, consciousness. So the sense then of consciousness is of rapidly arising moments, a moment of consciousness, a moment of consciousness that arises uh, in relationship to something. And you find this uh, very commonly in the in the commentaries to the Pali Canon. It's also a little bit in what the Buddha said, but mostly in the commentaries. Um, but again, very can be very useful if, if one can develop that way, just from the consistency of mindfulness, in that what it brings, seeing all this impermanence, there's nothing to hold on to. Everything's just slipping through the fingers, slipping like sand through the fingers, including consciousness, can't be clung to. And so letting go uh, happens with that. I'll say theoretically, because actually sometimes that mode of working doesn't actually bring a letting go. But theoretically, it brings a letting go, and it certainly has that potential. So that's another possibility, again, with its fruits. A third one we've touched more on in in, in the course of the talks here. And it's more practicing in a kind of opened out sense. So awareness kind of opens out to the whole field, the whole totality of experience and phenomena. 
And this opening out of the practice lends itself to uh, having a sense of awareness as something very spacious. So we talked about, especially when we talked about silence a little bit. Awareness begins to seem incredibly spacious, vast, unimaginably vast. Now this can be arrived at actually through letting go. So the more we let go in practice, the more the likelihood there is of the sense of awareness opening up in this very beautiful way. Very vast awareness, dependent on letting go. And how do we let go? We could either just focus on letting go, we could focus on the impermanence, and then we let go because of that, or we could focus on this, uh, the anatta, not me, not mine. Those are three classic ways of letting go. That sense of vast awareness might also be discovered, arrived at, uh, just by kind of practicing in a way that relaxes the attention. So usually we attend to this object and that object and another object and another object. But actually relaxing that propensity and being more interested in the space that opens up rather than the objects, the things in the space. And we say you can rest then in awareness instead of going out and doing things with objects. One just rests in that space of awareness that begins to open up. This is something one can do with the eyes open or the eyes closed. Actually completely irrelevant. Practice it with the eyes open, practice it with the eyes closed. One can also arrive at something quite similar in a more focused way, a less sort of restful way, and that's actually focusing in, in a very alive way in the moment on the sense of awareness itself. All this is practice. So everything that I've said so far comes out of practice and kind of uh, tuning the practice a certain way and a little bit directing it a certain way. And then these senses are discovered. And one can actually do it in a more focused way, actually focusing on awareness. It will, it will bring about a slightly different state. So we can use analogies to kind of uh, help ourselves open to that sense. So, the night sky, just just vast black night sky, and then suddenly, firework, burst of color, a phenomena, something's happening in experience. And of course we say, wow, look at that, amazing. Dramatic event, phenomena. And in getting drawn into the object, we lose the sense of the context. We lose the sense of the space, the sky, around that, that thing. Uh, similar, you could say a shooting star, a phenomena arises out of this space and, and you know, does its thing and then disappears back into it. A cloud moving across the sky. Same thing, a sense of a context, a space, which is awareness and the object in it and giving more attention to the space, the sense of awareness, than the object. So phenomena begin to s seem as if they're arising, passing, and living in awareness, which is different than how we usually think of the world. My awareness is somehow in here, the world is out there, phenomena are out there, and there's some kind of interaction going on. We begin to get a whole other sense that the world of phenomena is uh, being born and living and dying in awareness. Now, I'm going through this very quickly. Uh, in, in other talks, we spent more time on this. But this is 
something incredibly beautiful. If I had more time, I would really emphasize that more. Something very, very beautiful to open up to. There's an incredible peace in this. Just the sky, the space, everything belonging to that. Uh, real equanimity comes with it, and a real sense of very deep freedom comes with it. If we can, you know, something we practice over and over, we develop that sense of awareness. Now someone doing this might get the sense, oh, that sky, that awareness in the sense of a big space, that's actually pure in the sense, again, that it's untainted, unaffected by what arises and disappears and lives in it. So similar to the sky, shooting star goes through the sky, fireworks go in the sky, sky remains the same, unaffected, still, tranquil, imperturbable, vast. And one might be practicing in this way, and one is, if one does, one's usually really struck by this. There's an incredible sense of depth and beauty here, incredibly uh, striking and attractive uh, place to discover. And one has heard, you know, if one's practicing, one has heard of the unconditioned, the Buddha talking about the unconditioned or the deathless. And very common for a practitioner to think, is this it? Because it seems unchanging. It doesn't seem to change. It's there. Everything else is arising, living in it for a while, and then dying back into it. It seems unchanging and kind of eternal in the sense of lasting forever in some imperturbed way, unperturbed way. So one really wonders, or decides it is the unconditional wonders. Again, practices to be developed. I'm, I'm moving a, a lot of territory tonight, very quickly, la- laying out, uh, again, possible ways of navigating through this. If one learns to cultivate that space and discover that space and hang out in it and sustain in it and be familiar with it. It's possible that it deepens. It's possible that the whole sense of it begins then to deepen and objects, the phenomena that occur, begin to feel as if they're made of the same substance as the space of awareness. They're made of the same substance of aware- as awareness. So you might have heard analogies Uh, like waves in the ocean. Whatever happens, you, me, this, that, a sound, an event, whatever, it's all just waves in the ocean of being or the ocean of awareness. It's all just the same substance taking different shapes. Incredibly uh, freeing and useful perspective to open to. Everything's just an impression in awareness. And then in that sense, from that perspective, we could say things, the things of the world, all things, all phenomena, all observable phenomena are empty because in the sense that they're not different than awareness. It's all, they're empty of being something different than this vast, insubstantial substance of awareness. So things seem empty in in that sense, and they seem insubstantial, and they seem not real in the sense of not existing really outside of awareness in the way that we usually think things do, usually perceive things. I have a whole different perception. 
with that too, as it deepens, of course, there's a sense of incredible oneness. All is one. And, we've, and one has heard that in the teachings, different teachings, different traditions. All is one. And sometimes when people use the phrase non-duality, uh, they use it in that sense as everything is one. So it seems to tie in very strongly. One has a real sense, as this deepens, of there being only really one mind. So my mind, your mind, his mind, the, the dog's mind, whatever, is one mind, one vast mind that encompasses everything. And we hear about that in different teachings, some Buddhist teachings, some non-Buddhist teaching. One mind or cosmic consciousness, awareness knowing itself. Uh, everything is the play of consciousness, but that consciousness kind of is the base. It's somehow self-existent. That's the ultimate reality. And so very easy to kind of have that view. And it, it's very liberating at a deep level, very liberating, um, very useful. And these views are not a right, they're not intellectual standpoints. I really want to stress this. They're not intellectual standpoints. They're views that people come to through practice. So it's not like someone was figuring out da 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 da. It's actually through deep and sincere uh, practice and care and practice. This is the perspective that uh, can easily become, well, not so easily, but uh, eventually become to. And in that, as I said, there's, there's an incredible beauty, an incredible sense of mystery that the being opens to. A person who practices in that way a lot, who practices at that level a lot, who cultivates that and looks to cultivate that and learns, develops the skill, the art of really hanging out there a lot. If you meet a person like that, they are going to be very radiant very shiny, very big aura, very uh, free, and they will feel very free at, at quite a deep level quite a lot of the time. They will also probably be quite compassionate. A lot of love there. The Buddha makes a very marked point on one occasion, I think it was to Ananda, which is never judge someone's awakening or non-awakening, enlightenment or not enlightenment, by how radiant they seem, by how shiny they seem, by how glowing. Absolutely not the way you discern where someone's really at in the practice. But to practice at that level will bring that. And to learn, and people do, they develop it as kind of what they're going for. And they learn to, I'm talking about Buddhists and non-Buddhists, and they learn to hang out there. Incredibly beautiful, incredibly powerful. So before I kind of go into this in, in a kind of deeper way, I really want to make the point, before I sort of say what's the problem with these views, I really want to make the point that all of these are to be cultivated, to be cultivated. So it's not that um, we're uh, dismissing them out of hand immediately at all. They are to be cultivated. So we want to actually practice uh, de developing these in our practice. But there's problems with them. So let's want to look into this. So let's just take the mirror one, for example. The notion of a mirror, the metaphor of mirror, as something that gives a real true reflection of a real world. There's a problem with that. I can't find a stance in, co 
in consciousness. I can't find a place from which to look, a moment of looking. can't find a moment of looking where there's not something in the mind, in awareness, shaping, fabricating what is perceived. In that moment, in that present moment. So the conditioning factors are not just in the past, they're in the present as well. So what I see is always being shaped. It's always being shaped. I cannot find a sort of zero point in the mind. Sometimes we think that's what mindfulness is or that's what equanimity is. It's actually not. And if one really goes into practice, one, see, one cannot find that place. This is one of the most fundamental insights of the Buddha, that if we, it's easy to practice a long time without kind of going into this. I know we've touched on it before over the weeks, but it's so important. If we don't see this, that what we perceive is being conditioned in the present by how I'm seeing it and relating to it, we're missing one of the most fundamental and important insights of the Buddha. We might say, what's the problem uh, with that vast awareness, you know, that sense of vast awareness? Well, one, one thing is, it might seem that all phenomena arise in it and die back into it, but what about my actual death? Actual time when I actually keel over. I have to have a bit of faith that that will just be another event in this awareness. And there's no way of knowing that. It's, it's a leap of faith. Is it possible to have such a, such a deep insight that it's actually not dependent on faith anymore? There's no, no sense of needing, needing faith there. So this is, there's so much to this, as I said at the beginning of the talk, and, and to, to beware, I think, all, all of us as practitioners, to beware of answers to what is the ultimate nature of awareness, etc., that are too easy and too facile, or also answers to what liberation might be. It's just kind of hanging out in that place and realizing that it's vast. Beware of uh, answers that are too glib, too facile, too easy. I feel, and, and there can be for a practitioner at that point, for many times for a practitioner, is a sense of uneasiness at that point. Despite all the beauty, despite all the, the loveliness and the mystery and the depth and the freedom that come from it, at some deep level in the being there's a sense of, hmm, not quite sure about this, and real uneasiness. I think that needs to be cultivated, that uneasiness. Uh, and one doesn't stop probing and asking and questioning. So I, I actually remember um, years ago in my practice being on retreats and actually quite a, a number, quite a long period of time where any time I met a teacher I would ask them about this and get all these different takes and, and try and try and understand in my own practice, try and understand. And one time feeling like I, I just couldn't understand it and I, I wasn't happy with any of the answers I got. And being so upset with that, that I, actually I remember being on retreat at Guy House and just, just sitting outside and crying. I think it's really okay in, in the quest for truth and in the quest for liberation that there's agitation at times. I think it's uh, a sign of how much we care. With that big space 
awareness, the vast awareness. It's the place where most people will tend to get uh, to, to stop their inquiry. It's the most common nowadays place to stop the inquiry. But there's a lot of assumptions there. There's a lot of assumptions. Uh, one is that awareness is something simple and passive in the sense of it's just there and it just receives experience. So we talk, I think this came up in a question and answer or something. Just here. And I hear the bird tweeting. I didn't, it just comes. It's just awareness is simple and passive and has a kind of naturalness to it and a kind of natural openness to it versus what sometimes we use the word mind as. It's very complicated and enmeshed in thought, etc. But is there an assumption that simple means true? So we're very attracted to simplicity, oftentimes because our lives are very complex and our, our thinking minds seem very complex. And so simplicity has a real, ah, oh, oh, that's nice, simple. Feels soothing. Does it mean that it's true? So th- these are the kind of things um, one really needs to watch out for one's preconceptions, likes, assumptions. I think it's really important to bring you know, into practice as much as possible the quality of integrity. Okay? That uh, there's a real sense of caring about the truth and not stopping short and keeping the heart alive in its penetrating questioning. Not settling too easy. Uh, really caring and really being very careful in one's inquiry. Part of integrity is a heart movement. Another part of integrity is actually intelligence. Is actually using one's uh, nous. And that's what we say in England. I don't know if you say that here. Using using one's can you? Yeah, sure. Using one's intelligence as part of the integrity, as part of the care in practice. Uh, so not almost like leaving the intelligence outside of of practice outside of our meditation practice. To me, this is actually really important. And because we often have a very difficult relationship with thought and with discursive thought and thinking, uh, the thinking mind, oftentimes we jettison the whole of our intelligence as well and we regard it as something we need to get rid of in practice. That may be a huge mistake at times. Does there need to be a divorcing of head and heart? So just because my head is getting involved in thinking through stuff, does that mean my heart has to close down? For a lot of people it does, but that's just a habit and it doesn't need to be so. So it might feel better if things are simple, but that's just a feeling of it feeling better. And as such, it doesn't mean anything about the truth. Again, we might have an intuition uh, that the truth is this way, or that awareness is this way, etc. But in a way, lovely and good and helpful as that can be at times, it's still just an intuition, needs to be probed, needs to be questioned, needs to be checked out. Sometimes when we go to the texts of different Buddhist traditions, uh, it seems as if, the, especially the, the vast awareness, it seems that we find something in the text that really corresponds to that. And we can find plenty of references. But this, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but this is actually not as simple as it seems. 
words can sound very, very similar when you get to a certain level in practice. And we say empty or nothingness or vastness or this or that. And it's very, it can kind of all begin to sound very similar after a certain point. So it behooves us, I think, to really be careful not to be sloppy with language uh, in our practice. Be as, as difficult, as precise as we can, which isn't easy. And not to, though, throw out words or concepts. Because as, as I said, I can't remember when it was in one of the talks. If I throw out conceptuality too early, what happens is I just land, I'm just left with my default unexamined concepts. I've done nothing to actually really dig them out. I'm just saying concepts are not helpful. What we also find if you, if you do kind of check out a lot of texts on this is the same words are used in very different ways. So we use words like awareness is luminous. But it turns out if you really probe that, that luminous actually means empty or pure, pure meaning empty of inherent existence. It doesn't mean bright in that sense. You wonder, well, why are they using that word? Or clarity doesn't mean clarity in the sense that we would usually mean clarity. Or even the word space, funnily enough, doesn't even mean space in the way we'd usually mean space. It's not easy. One time the Buddha went to a group of monks and he basically told them not to see awareness as the source of all things. So this sense of there being a vast awareness and everything can kind of just appears out of that and disappears back into it, beautiful as that is, he told them that's actually not a skillful way of viewing reality. And that's a very in marked, interesting sutta because it's one of the only suttas where at the end it doesn't say the monks rejoiced in his words. This, this group of monks, they, they didn't want to hear that. They were quite happy with that level of, of insight, lovely as it was. And it says the monks did not rejoice in the Buddha's words. <laughs> and similarly, one runs into this as a teacher, I have to say. This level is so attractive. It has so much the, the flavor of something ultimate that oftentimes people are unbudgeable there. In the Dzogchen tradition, there's a very beautiful saying, very simple but very beautiful, and it says, trust your experience, but keep refining your view. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. There's a lot of wisdom in that, a lot of wisdom. One of my teachers, uh, years ago, when I was describing some of these states to him and questioning, is this, is this, is this right? Is this real? It doesn't seem, you know. And he said to me, actually, get attached, Rob. Get attached there. Slow down. Hang out. And of course, that was very surprising to hear. I was like, really? It, we need to actually hang out in these states because through time, they, they work their way into the cells and into the, uh, the view, and they begin transforming the heart and transforming the view long term in terms of freedom, in terms of opening, in terms of love. Uh, they really have that power. So it's interesting. 
you get different personalities. People who want to park the bus there and build a house and arrive and finish there, not with the kind of <clears throat> agitated impetus to keep questioning. And other people who want to move through too quick. It's just, it's just different personalities. So in a way one needs to get attached but not stop there. So again, please see all this as in the context of how, how a practice might, uh, might navigate through all this. Sometimes I really feel that people need to fall in love with those kind of spaces. Something really feels touched so beautifully inside. So, how might a practitioner move on from there? How might one come to a deeper understanding? Uh, one might reveal that that's not quite uh, it. Well, one clue is in the fact that if one really develops one pra- one's practice, it's actually possible to experience both this sort of rapid arising and disappearing of consciousness that I was talking about in the very fine awareness. It's actually possible to experience that, and it's actually possible to experience a very wide, vast, spacious, still awareness. And if you really practice this kind of stuff a lot, it's actually possible to have both those experiences in the same sitting. See it one way, see it another way. And actually to choose which one to have. What does that imply? There's, there's something right there that's at the, at the, at the core of, of all this. Now, sometimes I've come across uh, people, I won't say who, but people who actually then come up with uh, a th- kind of theory. Consciousness is what's called the, the rapid arising and passing. And you've got something else called awareness, which is the vast thing in which consciousness takes place. And the awareness knows the consciousness, which knows the object. And it's kind of this you know, quite complex theory that's actually just a theory might be a perception. But there's something here to question. Could it be that awareness or consciousness, mind, whatever name we give it, awareness and perception are inseparable? In other words, when I focus my mind in a certain way, when I focus it in a very narrow microscopic way, I have certain perceptions and I will have a certain perception or sense of awareness. When I focus my mind, when I use my mind in a different way, I'll have different kinds of perceptions of things and with that a different perception or sense of awareness. So the, aware, the sense of awareness takes on the aspect of perception. We could say awareness, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, is bound up with perception. This is something, this is at the core, and this is something that we want to understand. It doesn't sound very glamorous at first at all, but this is, is uh, what, what we need to understand. So how might I work with this? Well, one way, it's a very, I was going to say cheap and easy way, but... Um, <laughs> one way of doing it is to practice in this vast way. You get, you get this sense of vastness, and a sense of awareness is vast. And you get a kind of global sense of awareness, but then kind of introduce the thought subtly, the 
insight subtly that that sense of awareness is also, so to speak, happening in awareness. In other words, that's just a perception too. And you introduce that and see what happens, see where it goes. That can be very powerful for some people and very useful, but I don't think it will give a really full, probably not, probably not, a really full understanding of the whole picture of what's going on. So there's many possibilities to navigate through this, but one possibility, we've touched on this in here before, is using the practice of not-self, not-me, not-mine, regarding whatever comes up, regarding whatever phenomena, as not-me, not-mine, not-self. And we've touched on this, developing that as a practice. I'm I'm not going to go too much into it again. But including in that, seeing the awareness, as I said, I think, in the last talk, seeing awareness or consciousness also as not me, not mine. I am not that. This is a practice, as I said uh, in other talks, that we can develop and we want to develop. We really go on a journey with it and we deepen it and develop it. And what happens, potentially, when we develop it, and in the moments when uh, we manage to, and it might be just for an instant or two, unhook the identification from objects or awareness. In those moments, what happens? Well, a number of things can happen. One of them is the whole experience opens up to a whole other level of freedom, a whole deeper sense of freedom, because at that point, There is no identification with either object or subject. There's no identification with any of the five aggregates. So, of course, there's going to be a lot of freedom. Feel very free. But the second thing that will happen, if one learns to hang out there and learns to really sustain that as a way of looking, and we've touched on this as well, so just to repeat, is that objects and perceptions begin to fade because I'm not supporting them by identifying. Objects and perceptions begin to fade. This is so, so crucial uh, an observation in in Dharma insight unfolding, Um, including the perception of space. Okay, it all fades. Now, if I have a notion of awareness as vast and space itself begins to kind of fade or lose its reality, well, I can't really call awareness vast because space isn't something really real. And maybe my notion of awareness as something vast is actually reinforcing or reifying a sense of space. If objects fade completely, completely, completely gone, in, in, as it really deepens, is what's left awareness in the usual sense that we call, that we use that word awareness. So let's take a whole big step backwards and ask actually the the most basic question of all, which often as meditators we don't really ask, which is, what on earth do we mean by awareness? So we use that word all the time. (laughs) Let's just hold on a minute. What do we mean by awareness? What do you mean by consciousness? In English, we have a noun, awareness, consciousness, a noun. And nouns have a way of giving something a kind of sense of independent reality. It's a clock, it's a whatever the hell this is, lectern, thingy. It's a thingy, okay? And because awareness or consciousness is a noun, it seems to be a thing, a thingy. Pali, apparently, is more of a verb-based language. So awareness is really, when we think about what does it mean, well, it's awareness 
of something rather than something, some substance. It's awareness of something. We, putting it in verb terms, we could say it's knowing. Knowing. Consciousness or awareness means knowing. Now, knowing needs a known. Okay? For there to be knowing, there has to be something that's known. Does that? that? Yeah? And if there is a known, it needs knowing. So, vice versa. Knowing needs a known, and a known needs knowing. If I followed that not self-practice, or a, a number of other practices too, it's not just that at all. But if I follow that and I've seen that the known, in other, words, in other words the perceptions or the objects, are empty because they don't kind of exist by themselves, they depend on me identifying and clinging. And I don't know how they really are, how much clinging reveals the real object then in a way the knowing, we could say, is leaning. It needs a known and it's leaning on something that's empty. It's leaning on a vacuum. Do you see this? Knowing needs a known. The known needs knowing. If the known is empty, this is it's leaning on nothing. It's leaning on something that's empty. We say then it's groundless or unsupported. Awareness is unsupported, it's groundless. The, all this, so tracing stages, that we want to deliberately consolidate the insights. So objects depend on the mind, so they are empty. And the mind or consciousness awareness depends on objects, so that is empty too. Right? Because it's depending on something that's empty. I'm aware of time. Any time two things are mutually dependent, they have to both be empty. We can go into that, we don't have time. This groundlessness, this emptiness, this lack of independent existence of awareness, rather than being a kind of conundrum or a complication, is actually the insight that brings the deepest level of freedom. That's actually it. It's, it's not is not anywhere and it's not supported by anything. It's not anything that supports anything. It's empty. Most people are going to need to develop that practice in, take this word very lightly, stages. Uh, in the sense of gaining conviction first that the object is empty, or learning actually how to disidentify, then seeing that because of that things are dependent on that, which means they're empty. Gaining conviction in that and moving on, resting on kind of secure footings in practice. But with that the conviction comes and eventually the conviction that awareness is empty too comes. And with that the, the deepest freedom. I'm aware of time. Um, I was going to drop a little bit more in about doing versus not doing in practice because I know it's come up and it came up in a question answer period, but I'm actually going to leave that, leave that as an aside for now. So taking this one strand that we've talked about, uh, one, remember it's just one possibility, one way of going about it, disidentifying, learning to disidentify, practicing this disidentification. We said, in those moments, what can happen is a much deeper level of freedom opens up. Second thing can happen is that objects, the objects of perception begin to fade. Very important. 
a third thing can happen sometimes. And that is that time or the sense of time begins kind of uh, fading or stopping or losing its meaning. Some of you may have had a glimpse of this. Uh, The whole notion of past, present and future and a flow of time or moments of time, um, it's seen through. Time can stop. There's a number of different experiences that are possible. And one can sometimes just get a glimpse of that or it could be more an extended thing. One can feel as if one has a glimpse of eternity, but it's not eternity in the sense of something lasting forever. It's something almost be a sense of time not being really the reality of things. One goes beyond that. That's something we could give a whole talk to, and obviously I'm not going to, but that's also something that one can develop conviction in, and one should develop conviction in. Now I'm going to take a little time, because there's another way of approaching this, and it's probably going to be new to most people, I imagine. So one way of looking into this time thing is through the practice, letting go, letting go, letting go, and it could just be through letting go, letting go, letting go. The actual sense of time is seen through. But there's another way, and it's actually using reasoning. And this is very popular in some Mahayana schools, the Dalai Lama's school, the Giluk school, other schools. So we again have to ask, what's the relationship with the thinking, logical mind? What's the relationship with the reasoning mind? And Do we reject that as an avenue of truth? So, check this out. This moment of consciousness, this moment of awareness, is it inherently one moment or is it actually many moments? If I say this moment of time is one moment, if I say it's one, in its essence it's one, then either it's divisible into a beginning, a middle, and an end, or it's not. Okay? Either it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, or it doesn't. If it is divisible into beginning, middle, end, that actually means then that one moment is actually three moments. Because when, so to speak, it's at the beginning, it's not at the end, and when it's at the end, it's not at the beginning. Time is here, and then it's, and then it's here. It's actually become three moments. It's not one moment. The beginning must become, come before the end. So at the time that it's at the beginning, it's not at the end. If we say the moment cannot be divided into beginning, middle, end, that means it has no beginning and end, which means that actually it's non-existent. It's infinitely small. No beginning, no end also means that it's impossible to make a continuum of moments in which anything could happen. Because I have to connect the end of this first moment with the beginning of the next one. Do you see that? Like Like a chain? It's actually impossible. You can't arrange moments in order in time, in happening. If I then say, okay, I'll say the present moment is actually many moments somehow. But many is an accumulation of ones. It's an accumulation of one, 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 one together. But we've already said one moment can't exist. So it can't be many either. It must be either one or many if it's something real. 
It must in its essence be either one or many, but it can't be either. I'm aware of going through that very quickly, and I know for most insight meditators that's going to sound very alien, that whole uh, approach. is, I think, extremely powerful. What one can do in practice is actually hold the sense of the moment in awareness, focus on it, and get used to this uh, reasoning in a way that you can bring it in in a very light way, that you're actually contemplating the moment can be extremely powerful for some people, extremely powerful. But either way, whether it's through letting go or disidentifying, whether it's through using this reasoning, we see that time is actually empty. Time is also a kind of fabrication. So what happens, how does that, what does that imply in terms of awareness and the reality of awareness? Awareness, it said in the different traditions, is unfindable. We can't find awareness. You can't find the mind. You can't find consciousness, no matter how much you look for it, in its essence. Now, one meaning of that is, I can't see it because it has no form, no shape, no color. It's formless. And sometimes people, again, attempted to stop there as a kind of... um, seeing the complete unfindability of consciousness. But there's more to it than that. That's what the Dalai Lama would call the conventional truth about awareness, is that it doesn't have a form and so you can't see it. But relating to what we said, if there's nothing real to know because the objects are empty, because I've seen the objects are empty, how can I really talk about a real knowing? There's nothing real to know. And if there's no time for the mind or awareness to exist in, how's it going to really exist? So we say awareness is without essence, uh, but seeing all those reasons why it's without essence, because of the time and because of the emptiness and the fabrication of objects, all of that's involved there. So what, what's happening in, in all this is we're seeing that awareness completely counterintuitively is actually something built and because it's built, it's empty. We build awareness and it's empty. So the Buddha, in a lovely quote, said, um, Consciousness, when examined, is empty, void, without substance. Now if we just stop the quote there, that could sound like the vast, uh, spacious, insubstantial awareness. But he doesn't finish there. He goes on to say, like a magician's trick, like an illusion. In other words, it's something that's, there's some hocus pocus going on in the mind, and bada bim bada boom, there's awareness. And it's, it's a, it's a trick. It doesn't actually exist as something real. Consciousness, the Buddha says, is like a magician's trick, like an illusion. In the formal Dharma language, say it lacks inherent existence. If one goes into this uh, unfabricating, unbuilding, letting go of the building, then what's left? And is there a language for what's left? Some people use the words, it's awareness unbound. It's Awareness not being bound to objects and space and time. It's 
gone, just, it's unwrapped itself from all of that. But that awareness is different than what we ordinarily mean when we use the word awareness. Because ordinarily, as I said before, we mean awareness of. In everyday language, whether we're conscious of it or not, that's what we mean by awareness. It's awareness of. So it's different, different what's left after we unbuild everything than ordinary awareness. In some Zen traditions, they have the, uh, the phrase, no mind, no mind. Now, it doesn't mean uh, learning not to think. It actually means this. It's like a mind uh, in its essence that doesn't know anything, that's not aware of the things that we usually are aware of. So there's a beautiful Zen teacher that I, I really love called Huang Po. He's not, he doesn't seem to be that popular at the moment um, in, in the West, partly, I think, because his teaching is almost, almost exclusively at an sort of uncompromisingly deep level. And, and he's, he's very, he just keeps, that's all he says kind of thing. But he's very fond, I don't know if he started it, but he's very fond of this language of no mind. He also sometimes uses that interchangeably with pure mind or real mind, but they mean the same thing. Well, listen to this, it's a beautiful quote from him. This pure mind, the people of the world do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of that truth. Later on, he says, realize that though real mind is expressed in these perceptions, our normal perceptions, it neither forms part of them nor is separate from them. Incredibly uh, beautiful and profound. Last thing I want to say. I'm, I'm aware, uh, talking about this stuff, that it lands in very different places for very different reasons with people. And it could seem, I hope it didn't seem, but it could seem that all this is just, you know, it's almost an hour, an hour's worth of quibbling, an hour's worth of sort of petty wrangling about some kind of intellectual something or other. It, it may seem that way. But what I want to say is, one of the things I want to say, it, it's very easy uh, in the Dharma, after a long time of practice, to sort of hear this kind of talk and, and say, well, I don't, I don't want to quibble. I, does it really matter? It's all good. You say this, you say that, he says that. It's all good. Let's all be friends and we can all be happy together. And that kind of attitude, again, is very popular. I think it's quite popular in the West. I think contrary to the self-image we have, we actually don't like debating with each other and wrangling out these points. We actually don't like it. We prefer this kind of, it's all good, you know. But there's something that happens if I don't grapple with these questions. From the outside, especially if I'm, I want to say, when people in the Dharma look at me from the outside, and if, if my attitude is, you know, all this is just the mind getting into complications and arguing. If that's, if that's what I say, and it's like, I don't, I'm not going to get into that. What it's going to look like, what it can look like from the outside is, there's someone really uh, peaceful and wise and not engaging in the da-da-da. 
But if I'm not grappling with these questions, uh, although it might look like there's some peace and freedom here, I don't think that the deeper level of freedom will be arrived at. And like I said, it's, I think it's almost inevitable that at points in, in, in the unfolding of insight, there's going to be agitation. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be confusion. There's going to be wrestling with these things. That deep freedom won't be discovered unless we grapple with this stuff at some point in our practice, whenever that is. And I, I hope, I hope it didn't sound intellectual tonight. It might have. I, I hope it didn't. And that's really not the point. What I really wanted to unfold is something we can see in practice through developing practice in, in the right ways. You know, there's not one way of going about it, but there's ways that will unfold this. And what one sees is that different levels of freedom, unmistakably different levels of freedom, open up in one's experience, different levels of freedom and release. And going through that, one sees, one sees, one understands this building process. Oh, goodness me, this whole structure of reality, what seemed to be a self and a world and things and time and awareness, everything in space, everything I took for granted, is actually built. And I've understood that because I've gone through it and kind of learned to unbuild it and unbind it. And then one realizes, almost in hindsight, that one was either consciously or unconsciously giving things, the things of this world, subtle things and gross things, giving them an inherent existence, seeing them as being, as possessing inherent existence ascribing to them an inherent existence. Usually, that's un, we unwittingly do that. So a good rule of thumb is, you know, we talk about the emptiness of this and the emptiness of that and the emptiness of all things and blah, blah, blah. To actually safely assume that you are giving something an inherent existence, in other words, not seeing it's empty, unless you're really deliberately seeing it's empty. In other words, in its default mode, the mind gives inherent existence to things all the time. And that's what the Buddha called delusion, at the fundamental level of delusion. The thing I really want to emphasize is the possibility of practice to actually discover this in a real way, in a way that can be brought into the life and have an enormous impact on our sense of freedom in life. That that's possible and developable for us uh, in this room uh, as practitioners. It's just a matter of finding the way for those uh, that, that unbuilding, that unpacking, that seeing the emptiness to happen. That is possible and there's no reason why it uh, cannot be or shouldn't be. If we care deeply, as I said, if we, if there, uh, if we don't really want to grapple with it, it's not like it's going to suddenly make itself known to us at a heart level. So it's something really possible for us as practitioners. Let's have a bit of quiet together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.